Hello, wonderful History is Gay listeners. Before we bring you this next episode, a quick few announcements up here at the top. Uh, first, if you'd like to listen to more of me, Lee, hello, and what I talk about when I'm not on this podcast, I recently was on a really fun two-parter episode of a show called Ignorance Conscious Podcast where we talked about LGBTQIAAP plus uh, representation in media as a part of their Represent Me Equal Representation series. If you'd like to check that out, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts, and we'll throw up a link in the show notes to the website and a little write-up about it. But it was a super, super fun conversation with another queer podcaster, and everybody had some really wonderful things to say about the way our community is represented in media. And secondly, we also have another fun, exciting announcement. We just launched the History is Gay store. Uh, you can find it by going to historyisgaypodcast.com and clicking on shop. And there you can buy all sorts of fun goodies like History is Gay tees with our logo design on the front and tagline on the back. Super comfy hoodies, tanks, even a tote if you are into carrying cool things in a cool bag. We've even got more amazing things and designs coming soon for the store, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, get yourself some really awesome merch and show the world just how gay history has always been. Alright, see you in the episode. Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle endies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And uh, today we have a wonderful special guest joining us for our discussion on Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West, or as he called it in our lovely notes, uh, Queers with Mommy Issues. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Dan Arndt. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah. Hi. Uh I'm Dan. I'm a, a podcaster and a writer. I co-host the Right to Survive podcast. I'm a writer for the Fundamentals, um, the site Gret Woo! Gretchen writes for. Woo! And I'm a MFA student, but uh, while I also while I study fiction, I'm also big into literary history and especially the sort of forgotten identities of writers from as far back as as you can, whether they were gay or of a different minority, that sort of thing. I'm really into that kind of stuff. So excellent, awesome. <laughs> if it's very well with our interests, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. We're really happy to have you mm -hmm. here. So yeah. So I mentioned up at the top that we're going to be talking about uh, Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West, some lovely writers who were super duper gay for each other. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs> this, will, this will actually be the first of what will eventually become an ongoing miniseries called The Six Degrees of Virginia Woolf, because there are lots of writers that are interconnected and related to Virginia Woolf that just kind of fan out from each other. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, six degrees of gay. Six, yeah, <laughs> six degrees of Virginia Woolf, who was pretty gay herself. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, we've got some some heavy content warnings for this episode. So just giving you a, a heads up. 
We're going to be having brief discussions about mentions of childhood sexual abuse and incest, mentions of suicide and self-harm. Nothing is going to be going into, you know, graphic detail of anything, but we want to give you the heads up, as always, at the top. So if those are things that would be triggers for you, take a look at our show notes as usual. We'll put the time codes in the outline so that you could skip over those parts. Yep. And this is a people-focused episode, so we're going to start out with a general discussion of our social historical context. This time includes a pretty heavy discussion of modernism, and then <laughs> we will, uh, because it's it's very important for understanding this. Yes. And then we'll move into, we're going to do it a little bit differently today, because there's no question of whether or not <laughs> they were gay, we're going to, we're kind of smushing the like bio and why we think they're gay part together into one big long discussion. Then we will do uh, how gay were they, our personal ranking system uh, about how likely it is that they weren't straight. We have a word of the week for you. We've got some pop culture tie-ins. So we've got a lot of fun stuff coming. We got we got a lot of fun stuff coming. And speaking of uh, fun stuff coming, we just launched a fantastic new way for y'all to support us. We, we've started a Patreon page. Yay! Yay! We'll tell you a little bit more about it at the end, but if you're looking for ways to support History is Gay and talk with other listeners and have a great community and also get some fun bonus goodies, consider becoming a patron. You'll get things like the uh, the Sappho Salon we sent out last month and other fun things we have coming down the pipeline. So get ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, let's launch into our... Uh, our main topic. I figured since Dan is is such a such a modernism fanboy, uh, <laughs> we could we could let him kick off our our conversation around our social and historical context of the time period we're talking about. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so for with Virginia Woolf and Veda Sackville West, they both occupied the you know the very beginning of the 20th century, the sort of uh, the birth of the of the modern era, the empires were dying and the old regime is starting to deteriorate. The Edwardian period, when Virginia Woolf grew up and Vita Sackville West was born, was sort of the last gasp of the old Europe of kings and silly hats and, and marrying your cousin and that sort of thing. <laughs> and then- I love that those are the two things you think of. Like, yeah. <laughs> kings, hats, marrying cousins. You know. You know? Well, they kept, they kept the do. colonialism. That, that wasn't going anywhere, but- that it was still kind of clinging on, but then World War One blew all that apart. People died. We lost mm. a whole generation of artists. It's hard for Americans to understand. I think the how much it affected the society of Europe, especially Britain, France, Germany, and the mm -hmm. the horror of it after a century of you know probably a good war. Seeing the horror of everything, it made people really lose their faith in institutions. Uh, and one of those things, mm. and one of those institutions was art itself. And right. so we saw the rise of movements like modernism and futurism coming in with that, as well as questions of uh, gender and sexuality started to be asked. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Women were becoming more and more accepted in men's spaces, dressing in men's fashions, at least in the cities. And this makes a lot of sense for those of us coming from an American context. Think of, you know, what happened after World War II, where, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the men mm -hmm. went off to war and you have the women being left and they're filling men's roles during the war. And so that kind of continues after World War One. Mm -hmm. And in terms of homosexuality, the rise of leftist and artistic communities with modernism and futurism and things like that 
they were pretty accepting of homosexuality. Homosexuality became, in a sense, a symbol of modernity, modernism. The modern woman, according to La Vie Parisienne, has read Lady Chatterley's Lover, knows how to make children, how not to make children, important <laughs> distinction, uh, has <laughs> seen licentious paintings and obscene photographs. She has slept and not slept with a cherished girlfriend. So running, running the whole gamut. Right. Sleeping and not sleeping <laughs> with your girlfriend. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> contraception, that's the, the reference to not making children. So you have mm -hmm. contraception is becoming more readily available. Contraception's always been around, mm -hmm. but more uh, readily available and what, uh, to the masses in like... It's industrialized. Right, exactly. Yes. You have industrialized yeah. contraception. Mm -hmm. According to A History of Homosexuality in Europe, which I think we'll be referencing quite a bit, that was a pretty big source for us, uh, lesbianism yeah. was viewed by some as a Trojan horse to recruit new followers <laughs> to get them to leave their husbands yes. and families. We have this pretty delightful poster that we will put in our show notes that says, Feminism encourages women to leave their husbands, <laughs> kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. <laughs> Sign <laughs> me up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? It sounds like the dream. Yeah, so at the time, you know, as we have seen previously in Europe, female homosexuality didn't legally exist in England because, again, we have this proliferation of the idea that women couldn't be homosexual because women can't corrupt women because women don't have independent sexuality. Women don't have penises, therefore it's not sex. You know, that same refrain we continue to go back to, you know, like stemming back from the Middle Ages, right? Sapphism yeah. mm -hmm. is always viewed as mm -hmm. confusion and maybe they're trying to be a man. I don't know. And so in uh, uh. in 1921, the <laughs> acts of indecency between women are proposed by the commons in England. Uh, so conserv uh, conservative politicians basically viewed lesbianism as a threat to the empire. And we, we saw this also when we talked about Claude Cahoon, the, the same kind of reaction from France after World War I, the idea of homosexuality becoming a threat mm -hmm. to the nation, a threat to the empire, undermining the things that they were trying traditional to... Traditional values. Yeah, traditional and, values, undermining yep. the things that they were trying to build back up after World War I destroyed everything. So an indecent act between women... Yeah. Oppressing foreign countries <laughs> yeah. is... Yeah. Say oppressing, oppressing foreign countries is... Yeah, is, that's fine. It's fine to like... Colonialism's fine. Yep. But gotta get rid of the lesbians. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was you gonna say. You gotta draw yeah. the line somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and quote, <laughs> indecent act between women was considered a misdemeanor in a manner similar to the way male acts had been punished since 1885. But this... Oh, I was just gonna say, it makes me think of that uh, community. You know, that thing in community, like that little meme in community that's like, I can, <laughs> I can overlook colonialism, <laughs> but I draw the line yes. at lesbians. <laughs> Wait, you can overlook colonialism? That was, that yeah. was what I immediately thought of. Yeah. Excuse colonialism? Yeah. What? You can excuse colonialism? <laughs> the good news about this, though, is that uh, so that 1921, those acts in 1921 did not pass. The Archbishop of Canterbury were, was against them. And so you also had also going on in Europe, right? Like Germany at this time was super gay. And we'll even, you know, we'll get into talking about Vita. But uh, Vita once wrote that she saw two women singing sapphic verses at a Berlin nightclub. If you want to hear a little bit more context on Germany, uh, you can listen to our podcast on Hirschfeld. But I know we will at some point be going very into detail about the uh, like queer subculture and nightclub culture of Berlin around this time. Yeah. Yep. 
It was pretty gay. And that and that brings <laughs> us to, yes. to modernism itself. Yeah. Yes. Dan, Dan, would you like to start us off on <laughs> yeah. the discussion of modernism? Yeah. So as I alluded to before, art was one of those institutions that people get disillusioned with. A lot of the, I mean, a large generation of authors who were writing in more traditional styles ended up dying. And so modernism was a reaction to those effects of World War One. They rejected things like religious belief, the certainty of Enlightenment style thinking, really most elements of art literature, socio-political culture, organization, science, and philosophy. Basically, if it was traditional, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't like it. And it was ill-fitted to a quickly modernizing world as things industrialize. You know, how can you how can you empath- how can you want these romantic, you know, pastoral things when everything's mm-hmm. smoky and dead? And you know, the big mm-hmm. sort of evangelist for modernism was was the poet Ezra Pound, who in 1934 had this urging of make it new, that the culture of the past is obsolete <laughs> and that we should bury it. Kill it if you have to. <laughs> we can't. We can't have this podcast with at least one without at least one fandom joke in it. Now we've oh, made yeah. two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so yes, yeah, so you had a lot of repercussions in art. A lot of things like experimentation in form. People making art at this time wanted to completely destroy the way things are structured and thought of as necessary in order to make things work. So you get out of this time period things like stream of consciousness novels, abstract art, twelve tone music. Basically rejecting realism, right? Because realism sucks mm-hmm. because reality sucks. So let's do something different. And ideal and idealism as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Don't 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 yep. make it true to life and don't pretend mm-hmm. life is yeah, good either. Don't don't sugarcoat <laughs> all this terrible stuff that's happening. Um so you know, you get luminaries like Nietzsche, Samuel Beckett, Picasso, T. S. Eliot, James Joyce, Mina Loy, uh, even Hemingway and Fitzgerald, who that's a whole that's a whole nother can of possibly gay worms like they're i mean it's it's not even it's not even possibly gay worms like (laughs) fitzgerald like showed his dick to hemingway once when he was worried that he might not be able to be satisfying zelda and hemingway like flat out told him it like he was fine Um, they went to the to look at dicks yeah Yeah. right they liked to go look at dicks together in the louvre like and i just i find it utterly delightful that this like literary this writer that so many like your stereotypical obnoxious cishet white (laughs) mfa writer straight like that they all look up to like hemingway was very was very gay um his his (laughs) misogyny Um, and they don't even know out of the fact that he was super not into women guys (laughs) right like he had he had his wives dress up as dudes maybe maybe not the best (laughs) model for your you know misogynist reasoning Potentially. Oh, right. So, yeah. Right. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it even extended. So, modernism, you know, like, it even extended out into architecture with folks like Frank Lloyd Wright. So, all over the place, you have a complete rejection of this romanticism and classicism. Specifically, in terms of like modernist literature, we have a quote from a source, Gorski, that we'll reference. Uh, so, these writers felt that in order to present their new ideas, influenced by the rapid and often distressing upheavals in their world, they had to reform their means of expression. And insistence upon new designs produced poems without fixed rhyme or meter, plays and stories without plots or recognizably human characters. So that's the kind of like artistic right. oeuvre that we're, we're moving into of this period. Yep. 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 Yeah. One thing to note during this time period, we'll have a, a there's a note about the way that lesbians were talked about and even the term bisexual. During this time period, there were like these kind of archetypes of lesbian. Um, the first was called the morbid lesbian, who was a decadent woman 
sometimes a prostitute, as the inhibitions of homosexuality could, you know, clearly only be done by someone who was already promiscuous in Mm -hmm. other forms of life. These lesbians were seen as seductive and highly skilled lovers. They allegedly filled the women's prisons at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the idea of like lesbian Mm -hmm. as a a fantasy. Yeah. Like a hyper-sexualized male fantasy. They didn't think lesbianism was real, but they they still thought it was hot. It was was a weird thing that they had going on with Mm -hmm. their conception of it with this one. Well, I mean, I mean, that's definitely still yeah. something that that <laughs> happens today oh for sure <laughs> nothing's new yeah go to any porn site <laughs> <laughs> the second is lesbians who weren't necessarily queer but represented the idea of like an emancipated modern woman this also covers the proustian lesbians the like young giggly women children that share secrets and mock men uh, this is the idea of lesbian as a phase or even just like lesbian as like a stand-in for like your modern emancipated it's trendy you know feminist mm-hmm. yeah like yeah have a girlfriend because yeah. it's cool not because you actually like yeah, it's her. Like, right i'm yeah. interested in wearing pants and also trying to sleep with women plus <laughs> if women are if women are talking I mean, and mocking men they're clearly lesbians absolutely. like they would know have no other reason to do that yeah. right yeah yeah clearly and the third is the manly lesbian who is often conflated with flappers and the french garçon at best they're a victim at worst they're a femme fatale this is the idea of lesbians as a danger mm-hmm danger to men either mm-hmm. by trying to usurp male roles or like seducing you know mm-hmm. seducing women away yeah. from mm-hmm. from men yeah. um bisexual is also a fairly young term um it only appeared in modern sense in 1892 but even then like bisexual was more often used in like a medical sense yeah. for what we would probably consider now intersex yeah yeah or yeah you might also see hermaphrodite that's, used that's, interchangeably that with time yeah yeah with yeah. bisexual so that was kind of more of what it meant was like being of two biological sexes mm-hmm. or indeterminate mm-hmm. biological sex edna vincent malay the pulitzer prize winning poet and open bisexual was one of the only high profile bisexuals in the 20s by the time of freud you have the idea of bisexuality as a as a in terms of sexual attraction he even considered it to be like the default mm-hmm. sexuality, but only because of, you know, <laughs> prudism and society and whatever would uh, would people choose heterosexuality or be heterosexual right. only because society <laughs> made them. Yeah. Yeah. We'll even talk about this in a later episode that up till the 1970s, lesbian was actually uh, more inclusive of mm-hmm. women loving women experience, even those who had relationships with and were attracted to men. Mm-hmm. And... So bisexuality is a separate identity from female identity, identifying persons exclusively attracted to other female identifying persons. The way we think of the modern term lesbian was really a product of the LGBT rights movement. So when when we're talking about this historical time period and people use the word lesbian or even sapphic, um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean exclusive attraction yeah it's yeah. much broader than that we're, we were still feeling around trying to figure out what any of these terms were yeah um uh yeah and yeah but like you know lesbian and even gay still feeling were, it out well yeah but they were mm-hmm. really used like the way we use queer nowadays to sort of be mm-hmm. a catch-all as opposed to the sort of the mm. hyper-specific identities right. that we've right. developed as time's gone on yeah so uh so that's you know the the context that you need in order to go forward and learning about these people we're going to talk about. So let's get into it. Let's talk about Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West. Let's figure out uh, who were they and why do we think they're gay? So let's start with, let's start with Virginia Woolf. So, so she was born Adeline Virginia Stephen in 1882 in South Kensington, London. 
And due to the death of Julia, her, her mother's sister Adeline, after whom Virginia was named, the year before she was born, the family never actually used her first name. So even though her first name was Adeline, they never referred to her because it was such a harsh reminder of the death of um, her aunt. Her mother, Julia, was a strong mm-hmm. and willful woman. She was a model for pre-Raphaelite painters and her photographer aunt. And while a social reformer, Julia Stephen is known by some as an anti-feminist and identified in her time as an anti-suffragette. Uh, she believed that while women are equal to men, it's not their place to try to enter traditionally male roles. You would see her daughter had different feelings about that. Um, so she, she thought they each had separate <laughs> spheres that should be held in equal esteem. She was also described as intimidating, but also beloved by her children. And she was, she was Virginia's favorite parent. Yeah, Virginia uh, would fight with her Mm -hmm. mother a lot. They had a lot of tension. She actually found herself, Mm -hmm. she was more similar to her father, she said, uh, in temperament and in personality, but she Mm -hmm. preferred her mother. It was a weird, weird (laughs) family. Uh, Big family, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Big family, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were a blended family of eight kids. Mm -hmm. So Julia and Leslie, Virginia's parents, they married each other after the death of both of their first spouses so Mm -hmm. julia had three children from her previous marriage leslie had one and then they together had four children so you ended up with eight Mm -hmm. children in the family Mm -hmm. which it just sounds like a lot to me (laughs) yeah 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 well it was style at the time yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, oh yeah birth control wouldn't wouldn't come up you know really in fashion uh for a little while so yeah it was it was in fashion at the time to have lots of babies i mean it was the you know victorian (laughs) sensibilities um yeah so yeah, yeah. here's here's your first content warning. Uh, Virginia yeah. would eventually accuse her two half-brothers, George and Gerald Duckworth, of sexually abusing her in her childhood. Those are her mother's sons from her yeah. previous marriage. So, mm. yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she mentions in, in her piece, 22 Hyde Park Gate, the old ladies of Kensington and Belgravia never knew that George Duckworth was not only father and mother, brother and sister to those poor Stephen girls. He was their lover also. So, yeah, quite uh, quite horrendous things, you know, happening early in, in Virginia's childhood. But, you know, she, her brothers weren't the only person, people in her life, uh, as we saw with, you know, a blended family of eight children. Um, so, Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about her, yeah. her sister and, and other things going on in her family? Yeah, well, uh, her sister, Vanessa Bell, is actually a very interesting person unto herself. She was a very traditional woman as opposed to Virginia, as we'll see. And she really stuck to these Victorian values that were very much on the way out as the two girls were growing up. And really, Virginia resented her for that adherence and really for having a more holier-than-thou attitude. Mm. She's been observed to say that she eventually couldn't tell the myth of her sister, the saint, from who Vanessa really was. But they stayed close. Uh, they wrote each other all through their lives. They're, she's pretty much Virginia's most constant pen pal. And Vanessa was herself a member of the Bloomsbury group and some of the artistic circles that Virginia ran in. So they were close despite some of their differences. And some of that mm-hmm. might come from the fact that they did not have a very happy childhood. While we still, they were a relatively wealthy family, middle class, which at the time was still pretty wealthy. Her mother passed away in 1895 when Virginia was just 13. And at this point, uh, they moved a few times. The incident with her brothers has happened and she had mm-hmm. a, her first mental breakdown at, at uh, 13. Uh, at 15, mm-hmm. her stepsister Stella, the only good Duckworth apparently, uh, who was also acting as surrogate mother at the time, she died as well. And then she described the period of time after Stella's death as the seven mm-hmm. unhappy years. And then in mm-hmm. 1904... 
they move to Bloom, they move to London, and uh, she loses her father, who, as I said, was someone who she felt kinship with a lot. And after he died, it was sort of uh, Virginia and Vanessa mm, against the yeah. world in a lot mm. of ways. Um, but but things were looking up. Uh, you know, Virginia ended up finding a lot of comfort and solace in other people in her life. Gretchen, do you want to talk about some of some of the the good, nice things that started happening in Virginia's life? Some of her early infatuations. <laughs> sure. So when she was at one of the boarding schools that she went to, she met Madge Vaughn, who was 15 years her senior, the headmistress of the Giggleswick School, which is a great name for a school. I love it. <laughs> it just reminds me of like like giggling schoolgirls. It's right? the most apt name. It's fantastic. Right. Uh, it, like it sounds like the name that you would have in like a Harry Potter novel. <laughs> yes. Um, for the all girls school. I go to Giggleswick. But it's real. School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Yeah, Gigglewick. I'm going to pig farts. <laughs> I kind of like it. Gigglewick. It definitely yeah, sounds made up. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound Written, real. Sort yourself mm-hmm. out. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, at Gigglewick. Giggleswick School in the country where Virginia was recovering from a mental breakdown after the death of her father in 1904. And uh, Madge was also a family friend. Mm -hmm. And apparently Virginia had been crushing on her since she was 15. Yeah. And was really, actually, in a lot of ways, it was more of a misplaced longing for a mother figure because the crush would have developed not long after her mother died. Virginia even calls her mama. Though, uh, uh, Lee and I know some people for whom this is, this would be a... Um, this is a thing. Yeah. Mommy, mommy kinks a thing. Well, that was also that, well, that was Madge's role at the school. Uh, her husband was the, was the headmistress. Uh, basically she was the McGonagall of Giggleswick and she was sort of the mother for Mm. all of the girls there. Mm. Um, right. But who wouldn't, who wouldn't have a crush on McGonagall? (laughs) She's a badass. Most people, I most, yeah, a lot of people I know do. Um, but that wasn't her first. That, That wasn't her only early attraction to women mm. as we said she was close with her family her first really her first friend and first person she got really close to was also one of her first crushes and that was violet dickinson and they they wrote to each other a lot during this time period and they stayed in touch but kind of tapered off as the years went on there's over wow. 400 letters between them though in the mm. letters wolf is very affectionate comes across as a little bit more infatuated uh than violet does even refers to herself as a sparoy which is this sort of half bird, half monkey thing that she created that is essentially the perfect size, shape, and texture to just sort of snuggle up with you and never, Aww. never leave. Um, that's super and that was how she considered, that was how she considered herself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's super duper cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the Bloomsbury Memoir Group. Mm-hmm. The Blooms- it's also called the Bloomsbury Group. And this was a group mm-hmm. of writers and other artists um, mm-hmm. during Virginia's involvement with the Bloomsbury group, she entered into a pseudo poly relationship with another couple, including longtime friend Ka or K, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, probably K Cox Wild with the neo-pagans. So the yeah. neo-pagans kind of represented this like neo romanticism. So as we mentioned, like modernism was a very like anti romanticism, anti-idealism movement. And within that, you have the neo-pagans, or kind of contrary to that, you have the neo-pagans who this neo-romanticism, they were socialists, vegetarians, uh, nudists, (laughs) basically the hippies (laughs) of (laughs) the hippies of the age. 
women wore sandals and socks and open neck shirts and headscarves. Mm-hmm. Scandalous. <laughs> um, <laughs> women wearing sandals. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that idea of like sandals being like super scandalous as I'm sitting here in my like slippers and pants and, you know, <laughs> they would have been very scandalized by the vast majority Absolutely. of my wardrobe. Um, and yeah, this uh, you're a harlot, Gretchen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I enjoy it. This, I'm uh, comfortable. This Bloomsbury group had a, a really unique approach to art, specifically. Again, quoting from Gorski, the Bloomsbury group regarded art with a neo-romantic mysticism, a sort of quasi-religion. Accepting the social function of art, they promulgated their quote religion and promoted art for the masses. Primarily, they believed art stood for nothing outside itself and served no other gods. So, art for art's sake was like the big thing with this group. They um, were very pretentious. This, yes, <laughs> pretentious, pretentious peeps, um, pretentious gays. Although you know, the Bloomsbury group did not necessarily approve of Sephism, despite oh, how yeah. openly gay most of the men were. Hypocrites. Uh, excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> you know, yeah, it's yeah. just something a little gay in my throat. Just had something. Um, in your throat there. But yeah, like E.M. E. E. Forster, who's a big ol' homo, told Virginia apparently uh, he thought sapphism disgusting, partly from the convention, partly because he disliked that women should be independent of men. Like, okay, buddy, sure. Uh, you got a lot of great things to say about yeah. gayness in general, but keep that shit to yourself. Like, keep I that. don't want to touch women, but women shouldn't be allowed to not touch men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically mm-hmm. is what I mean, it it's that, sounds you know, like. Gay just, men's disgust yeah. over yeah. lesbians is yeah. not a new thing. Also, <laughs> right. Yeah. That like. He, he, he's out He's out back bottoming with Oscar <laughs> Wilde, but God forbid Virginia hold hands oh, with a girlfriend, you know? Ooh. Yeah. I know. Ladies are gross. <laughs> they have cooties, but they shouldn't be allowed to touch each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't touch me. Gosh. Don't touch me either. I'm, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> Um. <laughs> right, like, it's not even like it was he wanted them to touch him. It was like, they shouldn't be allowed to touch each other. They should only touch men, yeah. but just not me. I'm, I'm the exception from the rule. <laughs> only other men. Gross. Um, Shut up, So, yeah, so this then yeah. brings us to uh, Virginia's marriage to Leonard Wolfe. Uh, so they ran in, in the same kind of circles together. He was a friend of Virginia's brother, and he was he was of a lower class than Virginia and Jewish, so there were some some socioeconomic things going on there. Um, he was not an ideal husband, but the two were close. Um, he acted as a big supporter mm-hmm. for Virginia. He was really hyper aware of her mental state and stayed with her through her ups and downs, including a suicide attempt in 1913, a year after they were married, and another one two years later. Their relationship was primarily based in companionship mm-hmm. and Leonard's like support role rather than any sort of sexual relationship. They basically had none. Yeah, He himself was a depressive like Virginia, and they were mm-hmm. sort of two peas in a pod, but yeah. he supplemented yeah. himself to her a lot. Mm. Right. As as Gorski mentions, in some ways they enjoyed an unusually close relationship. Both worked at home, often writing, sharing their work and daily lives as few married couples do. Yet there was very little physical intimacy between them. Still, the marriage formed daily backdrop and kind of security that may have helped keep her sane and certainly helped her to write. Mm. So Leonard's mm-hmm. presence and keeping her somewhat stable in her uh, difficult mental states actually, you know, helped her accomplish her work. Yep. And then that yeah. that leads us to Vita. Mm-hmm. Vita. Ooh. As it was alluded to earlier and by Gorski, Leonard and Virginia were not, had that much of a sexual relationship. Frida and Virginia very much did. Uh, but first they met 
Uh, they met over dinner with Clive Bell, who was a mutual friend as well as Virginia's brother-in-law. Vita was 10 years younger than Virginia, but a more accomplished writer, better selling, mm. better regarded. But at the dinner, she found herself in awe of the tall and, and imperious Virginia. And Virginia found Vita to be aristocratic <laughs> and loose, even as Vita envied Virginia as a writer. But eventually the two warmed, Virginia warmed to Vita. Uh, really admired her freedom, her youthfulness, and really most importantly, I think, to her was Vita's masculine energy mm-hmm. that she gave off. And they met, and they, 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 she even, she couldn't even wait to invite Vita over before to her and Leonard's new house after they met, before they got moved in. She had them, her come over for a picnic <laughs> among the chaired legs, she said, where they still had the tables and chairs upside down and all the boxes were up, <laughs> just as so they could hang out together. Um, oh, God. And, Talk about you hauling. Yeah, honestly. (laughs) Haven't even unpacked the truck. Um, And after all these meetings and dinners, Virginia picked up that Vita was a pronounced sapphist. (laughs) And had become aware both through through Vita and through their mutual friends, because they were all, you know, gossipy bitches, uh, that of of all of Vita's um, personal (laughs) former relationships. Yep. Yep. Which which lead us to some really lovely uh, quotes about Virginia's own words about her sexuality and attraction. She says in a letter, an August 1930s letter to friend Ethel Smith, it is true that I only want to show off to women. Women alone stir my imagination. Or another one, a letter to her friend Jacques Ravarat uh, in the 1920s, uh, much preferring my own sex as I do. I intend to cultivate women's society entirely in the future. Men are all in the light always. With women, you swim at once into the silent dusk. I'd like that one. (laughs) In another letter to Ethel in 1930, she says, I am diverse enough to want Vita and Ethel and Leonard and Vanessa and oh, some other people too. (laughs) So she's she is also Polly. As well as being queer. (laughs) Yeah, she says in that in that same letter regarding her feelings towards men, my feelings were all of the spiritual, intellectual, emotional kind. When two or three times in all I felt physically for a man, then he was so obtuse, gallant and dull that I, diverse as I am, could only wheel and gallop the other way. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like he can be smart. I'm Polly, but I'm not yeah, that Polly. Like, he, can, he can be smart, and I'm not physically attracted to him. And if I'm physically attracted to him, it must mean he's pretty dumb. <laughs> right? I like the hot, dumb ones. <laughs> like, I mean, if you're gonna, you know, <laughs> if you're gonna have types, I guess it's not bad. Not a bad one. Yeah. Uh, writing to Vanessa Bell, so her her older sister, in 1931, regarding some of Bell's suitors. I suppose Jimmy, Peter, and Angus have some mystic charm, as I see that Vita has none in your eyes. I suppose it's something to do with the illusion of sex. The male sex eludes you, the female me. Thus I see the male in its reality, you the female. So, Gay blind like, spots. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, I see, du- I see dudes for what they really are, and I don't, and they're not. For me, thanks. <laughs> yeah. For the most part. <laughs> um, so yeah, so do we want to get a little bit into Vita's childhood? A little bit into Vita herself before we get heavy into the relationship between the two of these ladies? <laughs> yeah, and it gets yeah. heavy. Yes, it um, does. Vita was from a different social class than Virginia. While Virginia was middle class, Vita was aristocratic. Um, you know, one of those aristocratic gays, as you see. <laughs> she was actually born uh, in 1892, that same year that bisexuality became 
a sexual term in some <laughs> ways. She, too, had a complex relationship with her mother, the Baroness Sackville, who was a flighty woman who roped young Vita into her various money-making schemes and immature plots like starting her own consignment shop on the street in London and not actually charging anything the whole time just for the fun of it. <laughs> what? I want to be a lady in a shop. Yes. Without having any idea That's what exact- that actually means. Right. It's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Just a, ri- a rich yes. lady wondering and, what it's uh, like I'll- to work. <laughs> that seems like a fanciful experiment. Oh, yes. Yep. And blamed Vita when it didn't, whenever they didn't work out, she blamed Vita somehow. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, her father, the Baron Sackville, was a you know distant man uh, who had a mistress. While he and Baroness were close at first, they did drift apart by the time Vita was sort of of age, uh, whose mistress actually lived in their ancestral castle together. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And she had a grandmother who was a dancer, who the family swore was of Romani descent, and was therefore, Vita was obsessed with the romantic ideal of the Romani lifestyle, or as they at the time would have used the gypsy slur to refer to that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And much like Virginia, she too had many loves before Virginia. She did date some men. She had her man phase. Um... (laughs) She had a few men after she debuted. Right. Which it's always funny to me because like we use the term debut because, but they would have used the term coming out, but yeah. coming out is something very different now to us. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's funny to talk about like a woman who like dated men after she came out. You're like, what What, did, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um, yeah. Coming out, meaning she was uh, introduced to the elite society. Yes. She did not want to do. She did not want to do this, and her mother forced her to. Mm -hmm. She was put on the market, which is basically what it was. Yep. Yep. Was, here is my daughter of marriageable age. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Yep. Uh, She dated, the the few men she dated included uh, Harry LaSalle's. If you've seen The Crown, he's sort of the angry mustache guy. Uh, who gets mad about tradition, <laughs> who eventually married Princess Mary, and historian Jeffrey Scott, who she dated both him and his uh, wife at uh, various times and ended up breaking up their marriage. And he wrote an angry screed about the whole Bloomsbury group and, and, and lesbianism as a response Home to it. wrecker. <laughs> but then she she committed her life fully to, she got married, but before that she got, she was really committed to the ladies from then on. Mm. And her first female love was Rosamund Grosvenor, who was a classmate of hers and had a very interest. They had a very interesting letter writing to mm. each other. Yes, yeah. Uh, Rosamund wrote to Vita, "Promise not to sit next to me tomorrow. It is not that I don't love you being near me, but that I cannot give me atten- my attention to the questions. I am otherwise engrossed." <laughs> so uh, basically, Rosamund is like, "Please don't sit next to me. I'm too gay to function in class." <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Uh, Later, Vita wrote, Oh, I dare say I realized vaguely that I had no business to sleep with Rosamond, and I should certainly never have allowed anyone to find it out. The relationship was always, in her view, almost entirely physical, as to be frank, she always bored me as a companion, so. Yep, this is another one of those, like, pretty dumb, pretty dumb ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is my, this is my (laughs) favorite quote and I have to read it. (laughs) Rosamund sends a letter to Vita after a night together in 1909 and she says, my sweet darling, I do miss you, darling one. And I want to feel your soft, cool face coming out of that mass of pussy fur like I did last night. How is this real? It's just right. Like (laughs) this is in a letter. We have this letter. She thirsty. One lady to another. Super thirsty. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, In 1909. Like, in 1909, 1909. I, please, 
Massive so down on me again. Massive pussy fur is a is yep. a phrase you say in a 1909 letter. Um, I right? guess. Like, I who would have thought that? Like, if I read that in fanfic today, I'd be like, like "Oh come on, like, really? can you find a yeah. better way to put that?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's like but, yeah, that's that's dirty. Like, okay, Cupid DM level oh of, of of oh of boy. language. And this is a like 110 <laughs> years ago. Yes. Um, so yeah, Ugh. Rosamund even got to meet Vita's family multiple times, and uh, she was actually with Rosamund when she started, quote, dating her husband, Harold, who she valued in many ways as a friend and a companion, but not a lover. And uh, Rosamund was a bridesmaid. Oh. Because mm-hmm. that's what you <laughs> that's do. That's what you do. You put, you... Your, you put your lesbian lover as, as your bridesmaid when you marry your husband. Yes. That's normal. <laughs> yeah. You, you want uh, the woman who wrote you a letter about your massive pussy fur in your wedding party. Um, Yep. Yeah. (laughs) She also uh, was connected to Dottie Wellesley, who was the writer and granddaughter-in-law of the Duke of Wellington. And you'll see uh, Dottie or Dorothy comes up later in this story as as an interesting wedge between the two. And uh, she also was connected with Pat Dancy, who uh, just seems to be called a lesbian flirt by most sources that we found. Um, So she had a a brief thing with her in 1922. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But the long, I mean, the longest and kind of most intense relationship that we have is that between uh, Vita and Violet. And they met when Vita was 12 and Violet was 10. And uh, this is super gay, you guys. <laughs> um, they, they confessed love and exchanged rings at 14 years old. Oh. 14. And Vita says, before she went away to Florence, she told me she loved me. And I, finding myself expected to rise to the occasion, stumbled out an unfamiliar darling <laughs> which is just kind of one of those like when someone says they like you and you're like uh i like you too yeah awkward i love it I love vita how- had never been vita had never been the less gay <laughs> part of a, until violet vita That's was the more straight laced of the two uh which yeah. she was not used to <laughs> which is saying a lot actually vita lost and the, she kept the ring like vita kept the ring for a really long yeah. time she lost it in 1920 and it was devastating mm-hmm. and she lost like her ring of her, from her childhood love yeah. Yeah. yeah speaking of being too gay to function uh vita <laughs> stated that she is quote incapable of doing anything but slouching around when violet goes away literally too gay to function <laughs> like, this is like angsty teen like emo yeah. like my girlfriend's gone and i can't do anything <laughs> mope around the house gonna soak. um so yeah they would they would go on picnics and have lunches and spend whole days in bed together and uh many times vita would end her her super short diary entries on her days with violet with just happy she ex- mm. almost exclusively uses that word in her writings to describe herself with violet but it wasn't all wasn't all sunshine and roses. They yeah. were, you know, you'll you'll see a little bit of a trend for, with all of these women. There's a string of cattiness yeah. throughout. Oh yes, yes. The Vita Violet was a gayer and a little bit more immature, more romantic, and they would often try to spite each other. Vita mm. tried to lay claim on sex with Violet. They both had a pact not to sleep with their own husbands. Of course, this was after Vita had married. Uh, and probably slept with Harold at least once, but it was Violet could not get married until she made this pact. Vita would not let her get married. They mm-hmm. had this lesbian oath of fidelity, they called it. They would elope together on holiday uh, many times to France and, and Greece and all these very beautiful places. Vita would often dress as a man on these trips when it was just the two of them mm. and pretend to be Violet's husband, which we'll get to in a little bit. Vita wrote a whole book sort of about their love affair called Challenge, where uh, Vita is 
in the book. Her her character is a man. She called Violet Lushka and was called Vita Mitya in turn. There was a bit of a Russo-Felix streak in these two. Mm. They, but Vita couldn't keep it in her pants, uh, and Violet did not uh, appreciate that very much. It's another running thing with Vita is, uh, you know, her whole very loose belt. Uh, and uh, She had, a, she had a, a wide-ranging love of women. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But the, my favorite part of these two, and the thing that really got me into these two is the story of their final elopement at the end of their relationship. They had been married and both their husbands were getting, were uh, starting to yell at them. Both their mothers were getting involved and mad at them. And so they say, you know, we're going to run away and we're going to be married in France forever. Mm. We're going to be forever, you know, run away and be, be lovers. And they go, they run away to France and they spend some time together, but they're chased there by both of their husbands who were both <laughs> bisexual and might have slept together. Oh my God. And they were in the same plane chasing them over to France. So it was like a weird movie scene that actually happened. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm seeing like the like the like the ticker like the the dots um, on the map of like the plane, like like Indiana Jones style. Yeah. 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 Uh, But if you if you have that, you have to have the husbands like stop at some point and like have their own like scene in a hotel and then they continue on and (laughs) for their wives just to make it even better. Do we really um, want to be like doing it. this? Uh... <laughs> maybe we should yeah. just maybe we should just run away together. No, we have to find our wives. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently, uh, in a letter to that same friend Jacques Ravra, Virginia actually gave an account of this uh, strange elopement, saying, "My aristocrat, right, talking about Vida, is violently sapphic and contracted such a passion for a woman that they fled to Tyrol or some mountainous retreat together to be followed in an aeroplane by a brace of husbands to tell you." you a secret i want my lady to elope with me next oh so she like hears this story she's like can you do that for me like mm-hmm. this yeah i like it. Can, I like can we go on a wild chase <laughs> from our husbands to yeah. elope i also really <laughs> like the phrase violently sapphic i think yes. it's pretty great it's yeah. pretty great <laughs> um uh, so so vita ended it but violet still held a candle and just as a side note right like violet was always basically always submissive in her relationships uh she moved from vita to vita's old flame winneretta singer who was the sewing machine heiress married to a gay prince uh who was so dominant that there are explicit references to whips in their relationship vita had had more of the reins in their relationship but violet was the more uninhibited and free spirit dragging vita around europe and doing spontaneous things like filling their homes with flowers oh fun times super gay um yeah. yeah. And this brings us to uh, <laughs> Vita's really interesting conceptualization of her own gender. Yeah. Right. Which is really cool. Yeah. Dan mentioned that Vita liked to dress as a man and act like Violet's husband when they went on, the, uh, when they would elope and go on vacations together. So, but this was something that kind of we can trace. This wasn't just a thing that they did while on vacation, as you will. Vita actually was immediately aware of her gender. Her beloved, like, childhood home, which was called Noel, and she knew from a very young age that if she were a boy, she would have inherited the childhood home. But instead of that, because she was a girl, the home went to her cousin. And this was something that bothered her for, you know, a lot of her life was that she didn't get mm-hmm. to inherit the family home because of her gender. And viewed yeah. herself as, I mean, she she talks about herself as being a divided person, you know, half masculine 
half feminine. And I know, Lee, this really struck a chord with you, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She said that um, she let her male self free in 1918 when she donned the uniform of the Women's Land Army one day, breeches and gaiters, and described her feelings like this. So she says, I went into wild spirits. I ran. I shouted. I jumped. I climbed. I vaulted over gates. I felt like a schoolboy on a holiday. It was one of the most vibrant days of my life. And so she even, like, once threw a fit as a teenager over being unable to wear trousers or even a kilt with her khaki suit. And so this is something that's really early on is, you know, this desire to present herself more masculinely Mm -hmm. and feeling divided. Mm -hmm. While incognito, she would even call Violet her wife and go by the name of Julian, which was also the name of her self-insert main character of Challenge, uh, a book that's basically one giant love letter to Violet. Mm -hmm. She even was once eyed by another rich family to wed their daughter and shared war stories with their veteran son. (laughs) When they, when, when, as, when dressed and going by Julian, like a family was like, oh, you look like a nice young man. (laughs) Yeah, and she she was like, uh, she was like, well, I considered it, but unfortunately she was rather plain, but I had a lot of fun comparing (laughs) war wounds with their son. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, So it's, uh, she writes in A Portrait of a Marriage. Uh, so while on a four-month jaunt with Violet in Paris, she writes, I hold the conviction that as centuries go on and the sexes become more nearly merged on account of their increasing resemblances, I hold the conviction that such connections will cease to be unnatural. I believe that the psychology of people like myself will be a matter of interest, and it will be recognized that many more people of my type do exist than under the present-day system of hypocrisy has admitted. I advance, therefore, the perfectly accepted theory that cases of dual personality exist, in which the feminine and masculine elements alternate. Mm. I mean, this is a a 1900s, an early, like, 1900s account of gender fluidity. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it's mind-bogglingly amazing to me that this is... I mean, just think about this as, like, you know, a young non-binary kid coming up and reading that and being like, oh, this is what's going on inside my brain. Right. And I love that, you know, it's very, very... It reminds reminds me a lot of that quote from Sappho that's like, there will come a time, you know, like, people will forget, uh, like will be forgotten, but there will be people that remember us or something like that. And it's she's envisioning this future where the binary is a thing of the past. Mm. And it's so forward thinking. I mean, like, you know, we don't really hear a lot about Vita Sackville West and she should be regarded in her thoughts about at least her own conceptualization of gender, much in the way that we think about, you know, what Hirschfeld was doing. Right as mm-hmm. well yeah. right and i was i was so blown away by this right because her language is so specific yeah the mm-hmm. language of like being like half masculine or half feminine or like the feminine and masculine elements alternating like that's it's yeah. very specific language for a very specific kind of experience like she's not just mm-hmm. saying i see myself as someone who you know has masculine and feminine characteristics which many people who don't identify as non-binary would say but just her language speaks to something that many people who identify as gender fluid or somewhere on the non-binary spectrum would say that someone who isn't on that spectrum would not say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is, and this is at a yeah. time when, when gender was entirely 100% physical, you know, it was entirely yep. mm-hmm. based on genitalia. Um, and that's, you yep. know, when they still were using hermaphrodite to refer to people and forcing people to be a certain gender if they were somewhere in between, mm-hmm. uh, physically at least, mm-hmm. you know. And so having this different, a whole different idea before we had any conception of of 
anything way before Judith Butler, anything like that. She was questioning yep. all of mm-hmm. these yep. constructs. Just, yeah, so awesome. And it and it just seems so perfectly natural to her. She she writes later. I dressed as a boy. Yeah, it was easy because I could wrap a khaki bandage around my head. I browned my face and hands. I never felt so free as when I stepped off the curb down Piccadilly alone. I walked along, smoking a cigarette, buying a newspaper off a boy who called me sir, and being accosted now and then by women. The extraordinary thing was how natural it all was for me. Mm-hmm. Like that is just that is somebody that is somebody going you know walking down the streets and seeing how they could pass and feeling absolutely delighted with being called sir. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Like, I, th- there's nothing more to say about that. That just seems so, yeah. f- so f- just right there in our faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. But the uh, yeah, and then and that's the thing is she gets so abandoned, overshadowed by Virginia so much, but she's so mm-hmm. fascinating. But then again, her relationship with Virginia is fascinating. Yes. It's really the the meat of this of this discussion because the two of them. The peak, they were together for a long time, both as lovers and as friends. They, they stayed close uh, after after they broke up. Uh, there were some rumblings. They were both uh, very opinionated people. Uh, the peak of their love was about 1925 to 1928. That was when it was the hottest. It was the heaviest. But they stayed together up until the 30s. Their period together was, for both of them, their creative peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, the During the time Virginia produced her best work to the lighthouse and the waves, and particularly Orlando, mm-hmm. uh, even as, in Vita's words, we have only one confirmed instance of them sleeping together, which is that she said, Vita said to her husband in 1926, I have gone to bed with her, being Virginia, twice, yeah, but that's I don't know all. About that's the only yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you'll see, it's a little bit not believable, but that's the only right. confirmation yeah. we have. And uh, Orlando, fascinating book because it is a, a very, it's, I mean, it's, it's gender fluidity mm-hmm. in a way in literary form. Yep. Again, before we had conceptualized it, it was dedicated to and written for Vita by Virginia. It's a parody of a travel travelogue as Vita was a big traveler. It was an immortal person who starts out as a man, who's a very uh, ladies man. Uh, who changes gender suddenly at age 30 and then has to deal with with his dual role mm. as a man. Yeah, and Virginia a woman. even uh, says of Orlando that Orlando is Vita only with the change about from one sex to the other. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It was uh it was Virginia's gift to Vita to replace the loss mm-hmm. of her childhood home, Noel, that she yeah. felt throughout her mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the character of, of a Russian princess, Sasha, stands in for Violet in Orlando's life. Uh, the book, you know, mocks like penis envy and contemporary views of lesbianism mm-hmm. and gently mocks like Vita's idealism of the Romani people. Yeah. And because of because Orlando, bec- yeah, Orlando becomes a woman and immediately says, oh, I don't miss my penis. Yeah. All right. Let's go. And let's go have sex with men now yeah like it just happened and there's cool with it like there's no like oh man i missed my dick yeah um, yeah <laughs> it began a little bit of a rift between vita and virginia um vita you know wondered whether or not virginia only viewed her as a fantasy you know as a result of this but mm-hmm. vita's son nigel nicholson actually ended up calling orlando the longest and most charming love letter in literature in which virginia explores vita weaves her in and out of the centuries tosses her from one sex to the other plays with her, dresses her in furs, lace and emeralds, teases her, flirts with her, drops a veil of mist around her. Yep. Vita was uh, really very much supportive of Virginia's work um, overall, even if she might have felt uh, slightly miffed at her portrayal in Orlando. <laughs> um, she supported Virginia's mm-hmm. Hogarth Press with her, with her more commercial work. So because Vita was better selling during the time, uh, she used the money that she made 
for her commercial work to support Virginia, including works such as The Land and The Edwardians, which then allowed Virginia to experiment with her work because she's known as being the more, you know, experimental of the two. Yeah. And Vida actually gifted her work Seducers in Ecuador to Virginia. Mm-hmm. They, uh, Vida may not have carried Virginia away, uh, eloped with her the way that Virginia <laughs> wanted, but uh, they did go on a week's holiday, just the two of them, in 1928 to Burgundy. Virginia had a great love of Vida's dogs, which sounds like such a lesbian thing to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, the ab- when Vida would be off traveling, like her absences actually were a pretty big influence on Virginia's The Lighthouse. Yeah. Which brings us to some excerpts from their letters and writings, which we want to share with you all because they're just like so, so delightfully, delightfully gay. <laughs> um, so we're going to go, yes. we're going to go around. How about like, I'll start and then Dan and then leave. We want to, we'll go around and read these because they're pretty great. Yeah. So in March of 1923, Vita sends a letter addressed to Mrs. Wolf and Virginia replies, dear Mrs. Nicholson but I wish you could be induced to call me Virginia. And Vita writes back, my dear Virginia, you see, I don't take much inducing. Could you be induced likewise, do you think? <laughs> Get a room, ladies. <laughs> That's very erotic. That's <laughs> yeah. very teasing. And Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's educated people. I know. Yeah. You gotta love it. Uh, Vita then begs Virginia to join her in the Dolomites in 1924, and then um, later, mm-hmm. uh, Virginia's diary actually actually recounts this visit. Um, so in 1927, she writes about this visit. In 1924, she was sitting on the floor in her red velvet jacket and red striped silk shirt. I nodding her pearls into heaps of great clustered eggs. She had come up to see me, so we go on. A spirited, credible affair, I think. Innocent, spiritually, and all gain, I think, rather a bore for Leonard. But not enough to worry him. The truth is, one has room for a good many relationships. Oh, you Polly princess, I love you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in 1925, the two exchange more letters. And this is, remember, this is when they really get heated together in this time period. Over about two weeks, when Virginia and Leonard are staying at their holiday home in Rodmel, Vita writes, If you ever feel inclined, let me come and carry you off from Rodmel. I can devise many places to take you to. Mm. And Virginia replies, Oh, you scandalous mm. ruffian. Vita does not carry her off when she visits, but she does bring her flowers. Aww. Dan, I really enjoyed hearing you say, oh, you scandalous ruffian. <laughs> 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 Which is like, I love that too, because like knowing what you know about Virginia, what mm-hmm. we know about Virginia, that she really hopes that, that Vita does it. Like, this is clearly a like, I dare you. Yeah. Please yeah. do. Please I, w- do. I want you to. I know yeah. you do I'd like things. it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really hot. I like it. Um, <laughs> so, still in 1925, in December of that year, after they had started sleeping together, Virginia comes to stay with Vida at Long Barn, which is her estate with her husband, Harold. Um, I, I mean, a thing you do when you, you bring your you bring your girlfriend to stay at your house. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, Vida writes, My dear Virginia, I have been doing something so odd, so queer, or rather... Something which, though perhaps neither odd nor queer in itself, has filled me with such odd and queer sensations that I must write to you. The thing, by the way, was entirely connected with you, and wild horses won't drag me from what it was. Yours, Vita. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonder, wonder what that thing is. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. And, you, and you gotta love the use of the word queer, even if the word, even if the right? times have changed. I know. I 
it's so great. <laughs> oh, I always love when people who are historically sensations. Right? I always love when people who are historically queer use use queer. Mm. Even though, yeah, I mean, it meant something totally different then. I'm like, oh, yeah, you are, aren't you? Yeah, you feel <laughs> yeah. queer, Mo. You are. Um, yeah, so in uh, continuing on with 1925, Vita's entire November and December diary, which is mostly just like a th- list of things that she did, is just doing things uh, with Virginia. Uh, December 5th, she writes, alone all day with Virginia. This one, but they only, but they only slept together twice. Yeah, sure, totally. Yeah, one one thousand percent sure. Um, this one is 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 my favorite. Um, this so in January of 1926, a year into their affair, after Vita has left the country to travel, Vita writes. Uh, you know, after a while, like after missing Virginia desperately, she writes, "I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia." I composed a beautiful letter to you in the sleepless nightmare hours of the night, and it has all gone. I just miss you, in a quite simple, desperate human way. You, with all your undumb letters, would never write so elementary a phrase as that. Perhaps you wouldn't even feel it. And yet I believe you'll be sensible of a little gap. But you'd clothe in it so exquisite a phrase that it would lose a little of its reality. Whereas with me it is quite stark. I miss you even more than I could have believed, and I was prepared to miss you a good deal. So this letter is just really a squeal of pain. It is incredible how essential to me you have become. I suppose you are accustomed to people saying these things. Damn you, spoiled creature. I shan't make you love me any more the more by giving myself away like this. But oh my dear, I can't be clever and standoffish with you. I love you too much for that. Too truly. You have no idea how standoffish I can be with people I don't love. I have brought it to a fine art. But you have broken down my defenses. And I don't really resent it. And then Virginia replies, if one of you guys want to jump in with that. Go ahead, Dan. Your letter came this morning, but why do you think I don't feel or that I make phrases? Lovely phrases, you say, which rob things of reality. Just the opposite. Always, always, always to try to say what I feel. Will you then believe that after you went last Tuesday, exactly a week ago, out I went into the slums of Bloomsbury to find a barrel organ? but it did not make me cheerful. And ever since, nothing important has happened. Somehow it's dull and damp. I have been dull. I have missed you. I do miss you. I shall miss you. And if you don't believe it, you're a long-eared owl and ass. (laughs) (laughs) A long-eared owl and ass. I love how specific that is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in February 1926, Vita writes to Virginia, Have you quite forgotten about this poor pilgrim? I haven't forgotten that I am to tell you that I think of you. I think about you a great deal. You make a wonderful, cynical, kindly, smiling background to the turbulence of my brain. Shall I find a letter from you at Bombay, I wonder? I don't mind if you do laugh at me. <laughs> uh, January of 1926, the diary of Virginia Woolf. Vita comes to lunch tomorrow, which will be a great amusement and pleasure. I like her presence and her beauty. Am I in love with her? But what is love? Her being in love with me excites and flatters and interests. What is this love? <laughs> what, is, what is love? Baby, baby, don't hurt me. Vita would hurt Virginia because yeah. uh, well, after well, Vita well, finishes her trip around the world, the letters begin to become more sparse between them. They're seeing each other in person more often, but Vita is also carrying a little bit of an affair with another woman. That Dorothy Wellesley that we had mentioned, and Virginia's frustrated the lack of letters. She writes, not much news, rather cross, would like a letter, would like a garden, 
would like Vita. In a 1927 letter to Virginia from Vita, while uh, Vita was in France, she traveled a lot. Her husband was a was an ambassador. Regarding VW's upcoming trip to Greece, please wish that I might be there. Please miss me. You say you do. It makes me infinitely happy to think that you should. And then during the same trip, she says, I love you, Virginia. So there. And your letters make it worse. Are you pleased? I want to run home to you. Please, when you're in the South, think of me and of the fun we should have. You stick to your plan of going abroad with me. Sun and cafes all day and question mark all night. She actually wrote a question mark in there. <laughs> My darling. I love that. Please let this plan come off. I live for it. I'm in a queer, excited state here, owing to your letter. I always get devastated when I hear from you. God, do I love you. You say I use no endearments. That strikes me as funny. When I wake to the Persian dawn and say to myself, Virginia, Virginia. Aww. In a letter from Virginia in 1927, soon after finding out about uh, Vita's affairs, she said, look here, Vita, throw over your man and we'll go to Hampton Court and dine on the river together and walk in the garden in the moonlight and come home late and have a bottle of wine and get tipsy. And I'll tell you all the things I have in my head. Millions, myriads. They won't stir by day, only by dark on the river. Think of that. Throw over your man, I say, and come. I love it. What you see in these over the time is Virginia learning how to show affection and learning what love is mm. in a way, and also becoming more of a top, mm. which we'll yeah. see, which we might see a little bit later. But it's interesting the way she's she's moving forward in their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And in May, in May of 1928, uh, according to Virginia's diary, they actually went and got their ear pierced together, which is like yeah. one of the gayest things I've ever heard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, let's go on an yeah. ear piercing date together. Yay. Yeah. yeah they, she actually- uh, they really did go on a lot of, of girl dates yep. together. Shopping or, or just date dates, really. Girl dates is such a sanitized way of putting it. Uh, they went shopping a lot, too. And Vita mm. drove. Oh my god, oh women my god. driving. Yeah. What? Vita Which taught her to drive. Corasami oh, feelings. <laughs> I, I know, right? <laughs> so so Vita I mean, Vita's like Vita's the one who knew how to drive, right? She taught Virginia? Yeah. yeah. Like and she's like the aristocrat yeah. from like the very wealthy family. Yeah. Has has issues because of her parents. I mean, she's She's Asami. Please, Vita is Asami. Somebody, please make a Korasami AU where Korasami uh, where Korasami are Vita and Virginia riding their way through uh, through the Avatar world. Please, please, <laughs> just don't whitewash them. Yeah, don't please. whitewash them. It's you know, do it, do it this way around, not the other way around. I want to see <laughs> yes. Korasami in like but, in the place of Vita and Virginia. Yes, yes, yes but doing please. all of the things that, that they do. Please do. Yes. Uh. Yes. Please. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1932, Vita tosses out all of her pre-scheduled review books to devote an entire episode, uh, an entire episode of her radio review show to Virginia's new book. Oh my gosh. Uh, she also, uh, Virginia writes to Vita in 1932, "I prefer you bodily to vocally." Damn. Damn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> rude. So rude. We're starting to get some yeah. tension, and that was some of that cattiness yeah. that we see. You can actually kind of trace like how Virginia is feeling about about Vita as during their relationship, because Vita always signs her letters to Virginia, "Your Vita," mm -hmm. while Virginia's letters typically end "Your Virginia," unless she's mad, and then it's just V. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She didn't. Like, she didn't know how to hide if she was angry. Yeah. Some passive aggression. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, one of the as as their relationship is starting to come to to a head, come to an end. You know, we we did want to acknowledge that the relationship between the two of them, while it you know ends up kind of devolving into some cattiness and frustrations over fidelity with Vita, Virginia was actually able to finally begin to deal with her childhood traumas. Um, her mm-hmm. relationship with Vita was. Uh, somewhat of a healing relationship. She learned to use reading and writing to deal with her nerves rather than rigorous labor, as she had been told by her father and doctor. Vita Mm -hmm. gave Virginia her first orgasm, and Virginia actually bought her first ever mirror on a trip with Vita, Mm -hmm. which... Right, because she had, like, body image Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprising with what, you know, what she went through in her childhood and Mm -hmm. just, you know, being able to feel that, being able to make make that leap and buy her first mirror... On a trip with Vita is mm-hmm. really yeah. remarkable. Yeah. But, you know, as things do, sometimes things come to an end. Yeah. Yeah. As, uh, A, you know, the absences really took their toll on Virginia, and she, but she really resented how much she missed Vita and her reliance on mm. her as, a, as this freeing person and as, another, as, a, as a force in her life. She also viewed Vita as too conservative in some ways with her aristocratic background, but was really hurt by her promiscuity. Mm. Yep. In a letter to uh, Vita in 1927, the night after Vita slept with Mary Hutchinson, Virginia writes, Bad, wicked beast, to think of you sporting with oysters, lethargic, glucus-lipped oysters, lewd, lascivious oysters, stationary, cold orders, to think of it, I say. You only be a careful dolphin in your gamboling, or you'll find Virginia's soft crevices lined with hooks. Like, <sighs> Virginia's yeah. soft Damn. crevices. Lined with hooks. Yep. So. I don't like uh, that. (laughs) Gosh. Gosh, she mentioned oysters a whole lot in that letter. She can't have just been talking about the delicious, uh, the delicious food. Can she have, Gretchen and Dan? No. And this is our word of the week. Woo. Uh, Word of the week. Woo. Uh, And it is oysters. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If you've listened to our last podcast um, that Lee and I did with Queer as Fact, you will know that we love fun euphemisms around here. We're a big fan of euphemisms. They're pretty great. Mm -hmm. We will be linking in our show notes to a timeline of slang terms for vulva, which is pretty great. It's a really interesting way to track how genitalia have been talked about over the years. And it's also very useful if you're writing historical fantasy or fiction. Um, Mm -hmm historically accurate slang terms some of them are older than you think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> like like oyster which was used all the way back as the 17th century all the way up to the 19th century and early 20th century was used as a slang term for the vulva the term oyster catcher becomes a euphemism um as well in 1906 and then you have bearded oyster in 1916 and i just like why are all these things bearded? <laughs> and then also uh, you end up with uh, with with the pearl diver term starts showing up around mm-hmm. this time yes. as well yep. for for mm-hmm. for sapphic yeah. women. Well, yeah. and, well, and anybody anybody who anybody in, within who engaging in going down, but it was usually regarding lesbians, women, yes, lesbians. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah, you can. We'll let we'll let your imagination stretch as to <laughs> why why why. Gee, I wonder what, why. Uh, what significance the pearl could have. Um, so yeah, and uh, oyster as as a euphemism for the vulva could even be as old as Shakespeare. So listen to this uh, phrase from the Merry Wives of Windsor and tell me it doesn't sound like he's making a joke about sex. Why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. Um, so you yeah. know, Shakespeare's I mean- widely known for double and triple entendres right mm-hmm. <laughs> yep and yep he's got a lot and also dick jokes and and oh, just like yeah. vulva jokes yeah like yeah. much it, ado about no, sometimes... much, ado, much, much ado about nothing is literally a vagina joke like the title of yeah. the play yep. Mm-hmm. yep yep because because nothing was a was another was term. A slang term yep, <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. um so it's literally the title is like much ado about vulvas everybody it's like everybody virginity. is up in arms about vaginas <laughs> Yes, everybody. Yeah, everyone's that's freaking the, out about that's, vaginas. That's the, that's the speakeasy version. That's the speakeasy 1920s version of, of much do about nothing. Everybody's up in arms about vagina, like an old gangster voice. Oh my gosh! <laughs> anyway, yeah, I love it. I just, I really love the idea of like Shakespeare's this like really like highbrow, like hmm, yeah, Shakespeare. Mm. And I'm like, do you read it though? Have you read Shakespeare? Like, Count the fart jokes. <laughs> Um. Yeah, count how many jokes there are about like bodily excretions and, Um. you know, genitals and then tell me he's highbrow. Um, Anyway, speaking of uh, potential roots for the the idea of oyster as a euphemism, it could be that they were because they were much more readily available as foods. They were considered both a delicacy and an aphrodisiac during the time and were very unlike now where like oysters are like, oh, I have money. I eat oysters. Back then you could, you know, get oysters fucking anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I mean, it was like lobster. Lobster went from being like a, a trash food to like only rich people eat lobsters. Mm-hmm. Like oysters were kind of the equivalent they were something that literally anyone could eat because they were all over the ocean because we hadn't overfished them yet. Yep. So that could be one reason. It could be that it evolved to be a euphemism, both due to its popularity as a food, combined with it being associated with sexual potency and as an aphrodisiac, possibly visual similarity. You know, we've got like this happens all the time. We don't we never know whether or not like our are like avocados considered an aphrodisiac because they look like, you know, a woman's body or the other way around. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. um, it this me is just what happens when you have foods that are considered aphrodisiacs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very often it's because they look like parts of the body. They look like that's, genitalia. Mm-hmm. That's why lettuce like was asparagus. an aphrodisiac, right? Oh, yeah, because mm-hmm. if you cut it, it would exude this like milky fluid. Yep. We talked yeah. about that in our Egypt episode. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, either way, Vita and Virginia liked oysters, if you mm-hmm. know what we mean. Yeah. Hard to wink in but, podcast form, but... Yeah, wink. <laughs> um, so, so <laughs> back, to, mean, to mean. back to Virginia being bitter about Vita's love of other women's oysters. We're going to continue to talk about <laughs> the letters between them and their writings as, as their romantic relationship deteriorated. Yes. So, in a 1932 letter to Vita from Virginia, she says, Oh, I was in a rage of jealousy last night. Thinking you were in love with Hilda Matheson that summer of 1929. You went to the Alps together because you said you weren't. Now, were you? Did you do the act under the Dolomites? After, uh, right afterwards, she begins a letter. Well, my faithless sheepdog. Yes, you'll be turned into a very old collie if you don't look out and afflicted with mange on the rump. Why don't you come and see me? Poor Virginia can't come to you. And then she turns the cattiness (laughs) up to 11. 
with something she says later in that same letter, where she offhandedly mentions that Vita's old flame violet had came by Hogarth uh, that day. Mm. Who do you think came and talked to me t'other night? Three guesses. All wrong. It was Violet Trefusis, your Violet. Lord, what fun. I quite see now why you were so enamored then. She's a little too full now, overblown rather, but what seduction. What a voice, lisping, faltering. What warmth, suppleness, and in her way, it's not mine. I'm a good deal more refined, but that's not altogether an advantage. Oh, and by the way, Mrs. Keppel loves me and has given a dinner party solely for me in January. (laughs) So I love that. I love that 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 scene gets misinterpreted by a lot of biographers. They think it's her being like, "Oh, I see why you loved her. She was so pretty." But it really isn't. Like in context, no. she's just being mean. Yeah. Yep. And also Violet's mother, uh the her mother hated the two of them. She was one of the ones that got them broken up finally. And so mentioning how much your ex's mom loves me is just so <laughs> like it just it's, Damn, Virginia. Yeah. It's such a dig. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> like, to me, like, this is such a, like, sarcastic, backhanded compliment. Yes. You know, like, I see you, why you liked her then. Like, it reads as, like, oh, I can see how, like, when she was younger, she was pretty. Yeah. She's not yeah. really anymore. Yeah. And also, like, she's, she's kind of coarse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, I'm more refined. Mm-hmm. Oh, and her mom loves me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, In 1934, the cattiness continues. Virginia writes two very caustic letters to Vita over her cheating on her, writing, You're in love with another, damn you. Aren't I a nice nature, though, like a flight of green birds alighting now and then? I said to myself, no wonder Vita no longer loves you, because you bore her, and if there's one thing love won't stand, it's boredom. She's she's going to Ireland, where she hopes she'll be swept to sea for, quote, what would Vita care? Wow. Yeah. Yep. Um, very dramatic. Yes, very dramatic. Yeah. And it's important to note that like a lot of other things going on at the time, Vita took a lot of trips, as we've mentioned before, and these really like drained Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it cooled, Virginia had also had her own affairs with others in her circle, like Sybil, the Lady Colfax, and Winneretta Singer, which we mentioned earlier, also known as the Comtesse de Polignac. Um, and she also bragged about that one. Yeah. Um, Virginia was also at the time the subject of deep love from Ethel Smith, who we mentioned earlier in some of the letters, um, who at the time was 71 years old. And Ethel wrote pretty extensively about Virginia Mm -hmm. um, and her feelings for her. And Virginia knew, I love them because Virginia knew that Ethel loved her and didn't love her back, but didn't want to say anything because... She was like, well, she's going to die soon, so I'll let her be gay for a little bit while longer before <laughs> she won't worry. And then, you know, that was her attitude. It was oh. very, very weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she even accused uh, Vita of sleeping with Ethel at one point during one of their caddy oh, fights. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah, Virginia and Vita actually had a spat in 1935 due to Vita's involvement with Mosley and mm-hmm. her support for rearmament as Wolf was an avowed and staunch pacifist. Yes. Yep. In a letter to Vita in August of 1933, which is five to six years after they broke up, Vita writes, Dear Mrs. Wolf, that appears to be the suitable formula. I regret that you have been in bed. Though not with me, a less suitable formula. Oh. So, like, we're back to the Mrs. Wolf. First off, <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> she's like, she's mad. Yeah, 
super duper. Yeah, you can just hear the undertone. It's just like dripping with like, oh, oh, we're back to Mrs. Wolf now. Yeah. That's what and I'm the, calling like you. The, this, mm. That appears to be the suitable formula and the a less suitable formula. Those are in parentheses. There are sides of like, dear Mrs. Wolf, I assume that's how you want me to refer to you now. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, and then like that. I regret that you've been in bed. They're not with me. Obviously, the more suitable thing would be if we were still sleeping together. It's very, very... Which is so funny, because, like, Vita's sleeping around all over the place, and as soon as Virginia is like, let me, let me just, you know, dip my toe in the water a little bit, she's like, hey. Well, Vita is in control in all of her relationships, every yes. single one. She is the pant. She is the, she is in control. She is the top, except with Virginia. Mm. Virginia has Vita whipped, and Vita can't stand it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's going to be hard to... That'll be hard to swallow for someone who's uh, as used to being in control as Vita was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Vita had many lovers spanning multiple genders, polyamorous, monogamous arrangements alike. Uh, we don't have time to go into a lot of them, but we will list them in our show notes, as well as all the other people that Vita had been connected with. And probably mm-hmm. some of them will come up maybe in future episodes in the uh, Six Degrees of Virginia Wolf. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yep. And that brings us to Wolf's final years. Uh, Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, as we said, she got to a really good point uh, with Vita. So it was kind of the high point and really mentally for her. But uh, as their relationship cooled um, and as World War II was on the horizon, uh, she started really going downhill emotionally. Uh, she's just started mm-hmm. having more breakdowns and feeling more depressed. Her home in London that she loved got destroyed during the Blitz. Her husband, Leonard, who was as much a, a, a pacifist as her, they had been pacifists all through World War One, all the way back. He joined the Home Guard because mm-hmm. he felt he, he needed to. And she felt betrayed by him because he had joined this militaristic organization. And, you know, because she's a writer, uh, she had a biography of an artist friend of hers that she wrote that didn't do very well. That wasn't very well received by critics. Uh, so, uh, all those things combined and she ended up, uh, in 1941 walking out of her, of, of, of her home on the river Ose, filling her pockets with stones, walking into the river and, uh, she drowned that day and they didn't mm. find her for a few days after that. Mm. So yeah. tragic, tragic ending. Um, you know, but yeah. as we know, sometimes with, you know, with mental illness that especially in a time where there weren't as nearly as many resources in terms of, you know, mental health care, yeah. these are you see these tragic endings. Um yeah. but yeah. uh, you know, the people in, in Virginia's life carried on their love for Virginia even mm-hmm. though she was gone. Vita wrote an obituary poem for Virginia. She continued to write and praise Virginia as her mentor. She helped restore Sissinghurst, which is, was an ancestral castle of Virginia's family, um, to its glory. Mm-hmm. Vita became famous for her gardening. She wrote for The Observer. And uh, according to her son, Nigel, who we mentioned before, um, she began to find religion as she slowed down. Vita's affairs became more more long-term loves, kind of five to seven years long, where they used to last, you know, maybe two or three and uh, mm-hmm. and she died in 1967 at the age of 70. Yeah. And then and then Dan wanted to put a little note, you know, returning to Violet later in, yeah. on in her life. Yeah, Violet uh, is easy to forget about in all this because she was relatively quiet and isn't as big in the literary. She was a writer too, but isn't as big literary. But she stayed gay, as we said, continued to write. Uh, but she ended up joining the free French forces of World War II, you know, de Gaulle and such. 
um, and actually earned uh, a, a Legion d'honneur, uh, the French Medal of Honor, and was made a commander of the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic. She's kind of a national hero in France, um, mm. uh, which which I was just find fascinating, uh, even though she kind of dropped out of history when she broke up with with mm. Vita. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, before we get into our how gay were they, we'll just uh, take a minute to note the uh, pop culture references that we have mm-hmm. for these ladies. There's the film The Hours, which features Nicole Kidman, and it is based on Virginia Woolf. Uh, mm-hmm. Miranda Richardson plays her sister, Vanessa Bell. Mm-hmm. There's the 2015 BBC drama Life in Squares, which focuses on the Bloomsbury Group and features Catherine McCormick as Virginia Woolf and Emily Bruni as Vita. Mm-hmm. There is actually an upcoming uh, Vita in Virginia movie with Gemma Arterton as Vita, Isabella Rossellini as her mother, and Elizabeth Debicki as Virginia Woolf, which is based on a play. So mm-hmm. that sounds pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the 1990 BBC miniseries Portrait of a Marriage, which stars Janet McTeer as Vita and Catherine Harrison as Violet. So that's a fun mm-hmm. story if you if you're more interested in. Vita and yeah. Violet. All mm-hmm. the V names. <laughs> yeah. All, I know, right? There's episode. so many V names. Yeah. So many yeah. Vs. <laughs> Orlando there are, uh, gets a film treatment in 1992 uh, starring Tilda Swinton as Orlando, which is great casting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Dalloway also got a 1997 film adaptation with uh, Vanessa Redgrave as the title character. And then Gretchen, you mentioned yeah, comic series. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, highly recommend The Wicked and the Divine. Mm -hmm. So the premise of the comic is that there's a pantheon of gods that are born once every 90 years, and they're typically some kind of like icon, uh, artistic icons in the culture. Um, The current pantheon is made up of uh, like pop music or like R&B music artists, for example. But there is a one shot set in 1923 and features the Bloomsbury group and related folks as the Pantheon. It makes sense in context. It's super fascinating. Virginia Woolf is one of the members of the Pantheon. It's really excellent. Highly recommend it. Uh, The whole comic series, I highly recommend. Super queer, super fascinating. What's super interesting about the 1923 one-shot is that, like modernism, it's a very experimental, Mm -hmm. like, comic one-shot. It has, like, whole, like, narrative chunks inserted into the kind of standard graphic novel format, and it it takes some really interesting choices that make a lot of sense when you think about modernism as this like rejection of traditional forms of art and literature. So to have the 1923 one shot, which features the Bloomsbury group, modernists, writers, people like Virginia Woolf be an experimental like comic book uh, is really fascinating and it's super good and it's a great comic. It's what got me into comics was The Wicked yeah. and the Divine. Yeah. So. And and if you're listening to this and listening to Gretchen uh, expound upon how much she loves The Wicked and the Divine um, or you're even just interested in getting into it, there is another fantastic podcast specifically dedicated to the comic. It's called Once More with Feeling. So you can go take a look for that if you want a cool podcast to accompany your comic reading with that. Um <laughs> And so with that, we come to the end of our show. So Gretchen, Dan, how gay were these lovely modernist ladies? Dan, why don't you go first? Oh, uh, it's it's difficult. I mean, Vita was was super gay. Um, <laughs> I think if if we were to put her on a scale of zero to ten, let's say oysters. Is that a good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good that's a good metric for, for this let's one. Let's go with oysters. Uh, I would put Vita at about a fourteen. <laughs> Um, because of how committed to being gay she was, um, and her, you know, just the way she, and, and, you know, and the, especially her, her gender as well, uh, the way she, mm-hmm. her, the, the way she was 
queer in our modern sense, both with her sexuality and her gender. I think sort of really puts her over the top uh, in that in that organ. While Virginia, um, she never quite well, she was she was certainly gay. She would never never felt quite as committed uh, to her sexuality. She was always questioning it, always had issues with it. Um, you know, really only had one big love, and that was that was Vita. So I really put her at more like an eight out of ten. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah that fair. makes sense. What about Violet? Uh, Violet's a, I think Violet's a ten. Um, uh, yeah. because she uh because she was sometimes able to out gay Vita, but also was easily was um in different ways more conservative with her sexuality. Mm. All right, so uh, I guess I'll go next. Um, I would definitely second Dan's opinion on Vita being a fourteen out of ten. Um, <laughs> especially with like the intersection of her like sexuality and her gender. Definitely 14 out of 10 oysters. I'd rank Virginia higher because I think if you're going to top someone like Vita, <laughs> you got to be pretty darn gay yourself. That's that's true. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I would probably put her um, probably an 11 out of 10, like purely just for her ability to <laughs> um, to whip someone like Vita. Yeah. Who tops the top? Yeah, yeah. 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 If you if you're topping a top, like you're you gotta be pretty gay <laughs> yeah. for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I'll I'll also agree with you on Violet there. I think those are good rankings. What about you, Lee? Uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow the crowd. Vita is uh <laughs> is the gayest of the gay. Um yeah, I'm gonna give her I'm gonna give her about, you know, fourteen or fifteen oysters topped with a nice pair of breeches. Um, Ooh, yeah, yeah, she'd like yeah. That. Breaches for her lovely little gender play. Um, for Virginia, <laughs> uh, I I'm gonna go with around around what you're doing, Gretchen. Like a like a ten out of a ten, maybe even into the eleven. I think you know the the way that she speaks about her boredom around men. Um, you know her right. It's, true. Maybe you know maybe there's some maybe there's even some like you know heteroromantic things going on a little bit. She enjoys the companionship of men and, you know, a and a nice comforting relationship with them, but uh, clearly any sort of other things going on is going to come from the lady folk. Um, yep. And, yeah. uh, and, and Violet, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say maybe like a, like a, you know, 8 out of 10 purely probably just for <laughs> her, her choice in finding such some, some unattainable uh, goals <laughs> with, with her <laughs> Uh, objects of affection. Yeah, I also feel like you know, with Vita somewhere in there, you know, we'll just we'll just echo Rosamond, and for the for all three of these ladies, we'll we'll give uh, a nice over over rating of a a massive pussy fur. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, just what the three of these ladies were together, just a mass, <laughs> massive a massive pussy fur. Uh, yes, um, bringing it back around, bringing it back around. Um, so that's <laughs> that's it. For today's episode, thank you so much, Dan, for coming on with us as our yeah. first ever guest host. Other than you know, yeah. when we did our lovely collaboration with Queer as Fact, as we you know we consider that our dirty podcast baby. This is the first time that we've had a guest on our show to talk with us. So thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. Tell us where uh, our listeners can find you online, Dan. I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning, but where can they find you? Get in touch. You mentioned a podcast, so yeah, yeah. you can you can find my tell pod our listeners about that. You can find my podcast, Right to Survive, po Right to Survive podcast. Uh, we have an episode with Gretchen, all about writing and publishing and all that kind of stuff. And you can find us at 
righttosurvivecast.com. We're on Spreaker. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Basically, anywhere you can have podcasts. uh, We're on Radio Public as well. So feel free to uh, listen there. If you're interested in in me personally, you can find me on Twitter at DanArtWrites. The show Twitter for the for podcasts is at writing survivor um you can also find me on the fundamentals covering news articles yelling about you know weird things uh and taking on controversial characters that make me want to drink (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so that's that's me and so i really hope you guys have reached out because uh i had a lot of fun on here awesome yeah thanks that was excellent and uh gretchen where can folks find you well when i am not talking about sapphists and oysters I am writing nerdy <laughs> media analysis and uh, currently, very definitely, uh, crying and screaming about Steven Universe and reviewing Winona Earp for thefandamentals.com or my own personal website, gnellis.com. You can also find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter, all one word. Lee, what about you? So when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and trying to wrap my head around the images of bearded oysters and masses of pussy fur, <laughs> uh, I'm usually talking about <laughs> comics and queer TV and representation over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and putting all of my fun spare time into this podcast. Which, yep. speaking of, uh, yes. History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast. Twitter at History is Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community. And speaking of expanding our awesome community, as we mentioned at the outset, we have a brand new way to expand our community and for you to support us and be involved. So if you would like to, if that sounds interesting to you, supporting and being involved and continuing to help us make this podcast you can become a patreon of ours at our brand new patreon page you can find a link to that on our website or just search for history's gay podcast patreon <laughs> um and as a patron you will get access to special bonus episodes like our uh Sappho salon as well as other goodies that we have planned down the road we've got some pretty exciting things coming so um, if that sounds good to you, please yes. uh, get involved. Yeah, please help us make this podcast. We've really enjoyed uh, this journey so far, and we want to uh, we want you all to come with us on the next step in that road. And uh, so that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer. And stay curious. Stay curious.